A bear does make a minor appearance in um, (laughs) one of the stories tonight. Just minor, though. Good bunte, no? (laughs) So uh, this morning, um, Greg sent us a little uh, cartoon that uh, he follows. I don't know the name of it. He said what it was this morning, but I, I don't see the name on the cartoon. Um, and uh, he very generously uh, allowed me to use it in my talk. Uh, among us teachers, there's a little bit of a commodities market in quotes, and um, whoever finds one gets first dibs on um, using it in a talk, but he very generously today told me I could. So there's this, there's a little pig-like creature with little horns or something and a rat, um, they, they seem to be friends. So the rat's sitting on a, a, a square. It looks like the, like the squares the monks use in Burma. So it's not a Zabutan, it's just a square on the floor. And he's uh, got some incense burning um, behind him. And so the, the pig kind of pig, horned a pig little, piglet little thing says, um, what are you doing, rat? And rat says, Meditation. But it doesn't work, no matter how many happy things I try to think about. What do you think about? The little other guy asks him, punching guys who reclined their airplane airplane seat. (laughs) And the other guy says, maybe meditation isn't for you. And little rat says, shh, now I'm whacking him with my tray table. (laughs) There's like all these debates these days in, in like about how far people can recline their seats like and not be rude in airplanes. It's this huge thing that those of us who fly a lot know about. Um, but anyway, sometimes that's what it seems like meditating, right? The, the, you, know, you have these thoughts, not entirely useful, sometimes full of aversion. And um, it may be after five weeks or 11 weeks, you, 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 you're probably still having those kinds of thoughts at times. And you may be wondering uh, what, what kind of uh, progress you're making or what's going on here. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is paramis, parami practice. So we know, we tell you guys over and over again not to judge your practice, but we know you're doing it anyway. Um, <laughs> because that seems to be what the human mind and heart gets up to. seems pretty deeply ingrained, right? So I'm going to give you um, a different way to judge your practice and probably the way you're doing it. So usually when we judge our practice, um, there's two kind of main ways that we judge our practice, I think. One way is that if it's pleasant, it's good practice, and if it's unpleasant, it's bad practice. Um, I hope we've debunked that theory, uh, but it's still, that seems kind of deeply ingrained anyway, right? So you have a nice pleasant sitting, you think, oh, my practice is doing really well, and you have an unpleasant sitting, and you think, oh, my practice is it's just no good at all. The other way that we often judge our practice is by our perceived level of concentration, So how many breaths can you follow in a row? Or how many times does your mind wander? Or how long has it gone when it wanders? Those are um, some things that we'll find ourselves looking at. 
Now, concentration is definitely useful in practice, but it's pretty limited to judge our whole practice on how many breaths we can follow in a row. And really, how's that going help you when you leave here? Like how many breaths you can follow in a row? This just doesn't seem like the best criteria for judging your practice. So if you'd like to judge, what I suggest you do is <laughs> look at, we're going to use the framework of the 10 paramis and um, just see if maybe there's been some growth or some strengthening of one or some of these paramis. And in many ways, I'm recommending that you use that if you want to judge, because I'm pretty sure there has been. I, I don't see how you could be here as long as you have been without having strengthened these paramis. Uh, so the paramis are, I'll tell you them uh, right now, and then we'll kind of go through them a little bit. And as Greg, uh, Greg mentioned the other day what the paramis are, they're, the, um, they're called the ten spiritual perfections, or the um, ten qualities of a fully awakened Buddha or a fully awakened being, person. So these qualities are generosity, ethical conduct or morality, renunciation, patience, truthfulness, resolution or determination, loving-kindness, equanimity, effort, and wisdom. So even if you haven't entered into deep, blissful meditative states or had extraordinary lightning bolt experiences, my guess is that you have strengthened at least one and probably a number of these qualities, if not all of them, uh, while you've been here. Sometimes we can have this idea that the paramis are soft practice or maybe qualities we'll get around to developing uh, after we can stay with the breath nonstop for <laughs> an hour. Um, but they're really essential for our practice. They're, um, they're very necessary for our practice. It's often said that the depth we go into practice is related to how uh, developed our paramis are, or the paramis are within us. And sometimes when somebody goes deep into practice quickly, we'll say they have, they have good paramis. I've heard that Upandita, if you go to his center in um, Burma, that sometimes if people are there a long time and their practice seems kind of stagnant, he'll say, go out and develop paramis. And I've really seen that, I'd say, in my own practice, that there are times where I need to strengthen some of these qualities in order to um, somehow deepen my practice or, go, or come out of a, a plateau period or a, a period of... Um, stagnation isn't a very good word, but uh, maybe a stuckness. It's also said, and I believe Greg said this too, that the Buddha, sta- the Buddha spent um, 
thousands upon thousands of lifetimes developing these paramis. It's said um, that he spent exactly four incalculable ages and 100,000 eons. (laughs) And an incalculable age is how long it takes for a mile-high mountain to erode if a bird flies over one once every hundred years with a silk handkerchief over the top. <laughs> I think the idea is that it's incomprehensible, right? <laughs> and so the idea is that the, we, can, we can just think the Buddha spent a lot of time developing these, a long time. And this then is evidence too that, that, that this is really important and that um, we too probably need to develop these qualities. So each one of these uh, paramis could easily justify its own talk, and some of them we have spent a whole talk talking about, or several talks. Tonight I'd specifically like to look at them in um, relationship to being here on retreat, how they support our formal practice, and how we develop them or are developing them by being on retreat. And you may notice if... um, one or two or three paramis seem particularly your strengths, strengths of your practice. And you can enjoy that. Like uh, Brian was talking the other day about a healthy sense of of self when we can um, enjoy and appreciate our strength. So notice if any of them seem particularly strong for you. And then also you can notice if there's any of them that you feel... uh, could be strengthened, could be developed. You could even, if you felt like it, this last week of practice, um, to, to, to consciously uh, cultivate one of these paramis and strengthen it. Okay, so we'll start with uh, the first two. Are, are We've heard a lot about um, Donna giving and... Uh, sila or morality. These are such foundational practices. They're um, at the very beginning here. Sadhana, giving, generosity. If you want to, you could just take a minute to remember a time that you were generous, that you gave of yourself, something you had, or your energy, your love, your time. And then take a moment to notice how your mind and heart feel when you remember that time. My guess is that uh, the heart and the mind feel spacious and bright and uh, malleable, flexible. Does that seem like the kind of mind that one could practice easily with? That would be um, prepped and uh, ready to concentrate and be mindful. The proximate cause of concentration is happiness. A happy mind concentrates more easily. And so we can see that when we are generous and kind, giving of ourselves, that um, it it helps prepare the mind and heart for practice.
So that's one way that this parami is directly related to your formal practice here. Um, on retreat, specifically, we're developing this parami through the gift of our practice. Perhaps it's the biggest and best gift that we can give others is the development of our own hearts and our minds. Because as we become happier and more peaceful, we're able to bring happiness and peace to those close to us and to the world. As we are steadier and more understanding, we can offer that. There's several uh, types of generosity that are talked about in the teachings. And I'm going to use a story about birds as a way to illustrate this. So one time, a number of years ago, I was sitting with my morning cup of tea watching the birds. I like to watch the birds in the morning anytime. Birds are great. And um, so I tend to have bird feeders where I live. And um, the bears like the bird feeders quite a bit. (laughs) And in my old house, I wasn't so good at now we've got it down pat. But um, in my old house, like the bird feeder was off of a porch. So um, occasionally the bird feeder would disappear. <laughs> One time I saw this bear running through the field. It had the bird feeder under its hand, and then the other three were running. <laughs> so it took off with my bird feeder. Bird feeders are expensive. <laughs> They are. They're really expensive. So, like, you know, even a small one's like $50, $60. So <laughs> I had this thought as I was watching the birds. So I'd given the birds all this bird food, right, the bird seed. But I had this thought, I wonder if I'm getting my fair share, like if I'm getting my money's worth um, of entertainment. <laughs> so this is the lowest kind of giving. <laughs> this is when... Um, our own, uh, you know, it's self-centered that, that, that we want something back. There's a bargaining, um, sometimes called beggarly giving. Then I didn't like that mind state. It wasn't very comfortable. It was unpleasant. There was a contraction and constriction. So I, I switched, and I thought, this bird food's my gift to the birds, just freely given. I felt much better. The mind was much lighter. This is often called friendly giving, where we start to understand that it feels good to give and um, that it feels even better to give more openly without wanting something back. And then my mind, I didn't really try to make this happen, but it kind of went further. It went into like, there wasn't the sense of me being the giver of the food and the bird's receiver. There was a sense that we were just doing this kind of dance and that it just happened to me, my role to be offering and them to be eating. But there wasn't that sense of me as the giver. It was just things go where they're needed. Um, And this is more like what's known as selfless giving or the, um, the happiest kind of giving, right? With the least amount of self-concern or constriction. And I was thinking about this in relationship to our practice and the gift of our practice. I think there's kind of a similar um, development for us. 
So we often come to practice with the idea that um, um, that we're suffering a lot, and we want we want something. We want relief from our suffering, basically. Um, and although our practice may be a gift to others, there's this uh, really concern about what we can get out of practice. So it's still helpful and useful, right? But but there's that um, a little bit of tightening around it. And then as um, uh, at different times, or perhaps as as we meditate more, there's more of the sense of, oh, like I remember, I remember probably the first time it like really occurred to me that I was going to keep practicing for uh, to spare to help spare people my aversion and anger, like to to, to for for the benefit of others that I come around, because so that that I have. Um, uh, um, purified or, or learned to work with uh, greed and aversion and delusion so that I wouldn't cause so much trouble in the world. Basically so that we can leave a, a wake behind us that's peaceful rather than turbulent. Starts to free up. And then maybe a freer way of, even a freer way of thinking of the gift of our practices like I mentioned in the hall a week or two ago in the morning. It's, 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 we're, we're just doing this work because it needs to be done and because um, it, it's needed in this world and there's not so much sense of us offering it. We're just playing the role. This is our role to, to heal our hearts and minds and offer that. Pema Chodron, in my favorite quote about giving, says, giving ventilates the claustrophobia of self-absorption. And that's what we, we see for ourselves, that the um, more that we give and the more freely that it's offered, uh, that sense of um, being confined within our own self-concern starts to dissolve. Some air gets in, it gets ventilated. So even if you didn't come here with the idea that your practice is a gift to this world. It really is. And when we do sharing of the merit at times, uh, you know, where we offer the fruits of our practice for the benefit of all living, sentient beings, that's a way of offering our practice. So just by being here, you're developing this gift. The second parami is uh, sila, or ethical conduct, morality. And that follows from the parmi of giving in that it's also one of the best gifts that we can give to this world is our commitment to non-harming. Specifically, following the precepts is one uh, um, very concrete way of talking about this Parami of Sila. The Buddha said, this is a, There is a case where a disciple of the noble ones, abandoning the taking of life, abstains from taking life, abstains from taking what is not given, abstains from sexual misconduct, abstains from lying, abstains from taking intoxicants. In doing so, he or she gives freedom from danger 
freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. This is a gift, a great gift, original, long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, unadulterated from the beginning that is not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, is unfaulted by wise ones. In addition to being a gift to others, um, this commitment to non-harming is a gift to ourselves. The Buddha stated that a commitment to non-harming is really important if we want to have success in meditation practice. He said that trying to practice meditation without a foundation of non-harming is like trying to cross a river in a rowboat without first untying the boat. No matter how strenuously we try to row, we're not going to get anywhere. And when this becomes, and when we meditate, this becomes clear to us. I'm sure that just about every single one of you has had times in practice where you've remembered things that you did that were um, unskillful and perhaps caused harm. And then we can see, and part of our learning is to see what happens to our minds when we remember those times, right? Uh, The mind, unlike when we remember an act of generosity, the mind can be turbulent, restless, heavy, constricted, right? Does that mind meditate very well? (laughs) Not so easily. When we understand sila deeply, we see that the effects of our actions live on in our minds and our hearts for long after we do them. And this understanding helps us to purify our conduct. I think it, the uh, general folks don't have a sense of how the impact of what we do can stay in our minds. I remember... Um, my first long retreat here, I had spent the summer before living at uh, my father's house. I was 24, and I didn't have anything to do for the summer, so I was just waiting for the retreat to start. And um, so I didn't have anything to do, so I, I watched a couple of soap operas on TV. I would put this under breaking the fifth precept of taking intoxicants that cloud the mind. <laughs> so what was it like my first three weeks on retreat here? What was I thinking about? I was thinking about the soap operas. Like, I wonder if he stayed with her, and did she find out about that? And, and like, I'd be like, I don't care, right? <laughs> but <laughs> this is what had been going in my mind, and this was, um, the, the imprint was left, right? The, the um, effect. And that was such an important teaching for me. Really, um, gave me a a great understanding of karma, actually. So we'll have different ways that um, we'll uh, remember uh, past actions that were unwholesome. Sometimes we go through periods where this will happen a lot for a period of time. I've gone through several of these in my practice over the years. And um, sometimes it'll be just like all of these things will come up. Not huge things, but I mean, I still remember from that first retreat that I borrowed the sheets from my dad's house without asking. And 
and things like that. I Somebody had lent me a shirt and I liked it and I kept forgetting to give it back to her. And um, just, you know, the go just rolling through all these uh, ways that um, I hadn't been as clean with my conduct as I really then wanted to be because I saw the effects. So so this happens on retreat and this is a strengthening of sila. If you've had these periods then then you're strengthening this quality because what happens is the remorse that we feel um, motivates us, right? So we're willing to sit through the remorse here um, and to see the effect of our actions and uh, that's developing this parami. And the other way that we develop this parami on retreat is um, just keeping the precepts here. That's, That's a way to strengthen, even to, to remember what they are here over and over again. It's like, I know after a period of time of practice, it's the precepts become deeply ingrained in our system. And for me, sometimes when I'll be about to do something that's against a precept, I'm not talking big, huge things, you guys don't worry about that, but, but, but just a white lie, for example. This little flag will like wave in my mind. It'll be like, precept, precept. <laughs> and then it, it gives me the space to stop and go, oh, okay, do I really want to do that? There's another way besides for telling a lie. So, so you're practicing with these, and they, and they will, um, if you stay committed to practice, they will be a huge part of your practice. And so here you may have encountered a, 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 a little bug somewhere and you either took it outside or took care of it rather than killing it. Practicing silence certainly helps with uh, skillful speech. <laughs> Let's say we have a Vipassana romance, giving that person space. That's practicing the third precept. So there's ways on practi- that we're here, that while we're here, we keep these uh, precepts, strengthening this quality of sila. The third parami is renunciation or restraint. Renunciation is about contentment with little, with being happy with what is given. On retreat, we learn the value of simplicity and contentment. You're definitely practicing external uh, uh, renunciation, meaning renunciation around things and environment. There's no doubt about it. Um, Gave up probably many comforts and distractions to be here. Just letting go of the internet for many people is huge, huge renunciation. Give up control of when you eat. Give up many, many, many uh, external things. And the beauty of this is that it can teach us that we don't need things to be a certain way in order to be happy. Here's a story about renunciation from a a teen that I, I taught the teen retreat here for 18 years, and uh, 
really loved it. This was one young man named Elliot Cash. So he said I could share this. So he'd been coming to retreats since he was in the uh, in the womb. He, uh, he went through all the family retreats, and then he was at the teen retreats. So he was describing one particularly meaningful moment. He said, Last summer, during a sit towards the end of the teen course, I was going about my usual routine, settling the mind, focusing on the breath, and letting ambient sounds come and go. Suddenly, I experienced a first in my meditation practice. I was uncontrollably happy. Feelings of total relaxation, of fullness, of being in the right place and doing the right thing were produced. Experiencing this happiness was extremely powerful. It wasn't about beating a video game or buying a new pair of shoes, but was pure joy in its simplest form, joy about nothing at all. And then he goes on to talk about how nice it was to be with the other teenagers and then how um, a few minutes later he was back to the struggle of staying in the present moment. While this deep happiness only lasted a short time, it was gratifying to know how rewarding it is. It's a great summary of renunciation and um, what we can learn on retreat. I hope you've had a moment or two like that um, in the time here where it's just, you're just present. Nothing special perhaps, just the breath maybe. But there's a sense of contentment and joy that comes from not needing things or stimulation. This kind of renunciation that we practice here in simplicity is its kind of revolutionary in um, the West, I would say. I heard that the Thai... Uh, monk Buddha Dasa got in trouble with the government because they were trying to quote-unquote modernize the country with uh, quote-unquote progress, <laughs> capitalism, whatever. And uh, his teaching all about Buddhism was not encouraging people to buy things. And uh, they didn't like that. Rockefeller, uh, a, a rich person, was once asked, how much would be enough and he answered, just a little more. <laughs> that's more, that's more of the way we typically look at it, right? <laughs> Here we learn the um, emptiness of that promise of a little more. And we find a different source of happiness. There's also inner renunciation, which is about, um, it's a lot about restraint, learning how to work with the energies of grasping and aversion and uh, delusion, learning how to work with them rather than acting them out. And you've all been doing that here for sure. We see that they arise, they pass away, we learn that we don't have to uh, listen to the whims of our mind We see that aversion and desire are also empty, that they only have power because we believe them. This is part of the inner renunciation. Also giving up the stories, giving up um, living lost in stories, that moment that we wake up and we say, 
oh, okay, thinking, let it go, return to present time reality. Each one of those moments is a moment of renunciation, strengthening that quality. And community living gives us chances to work with um, restraint. Good fire for our practice. Looking at where we feel like we need things to be the way we want them to be. Perhaps seeing that we don't. I know that in the old days they used to have window wars and here they, in the three-month course people would open and close the windows and there would be these big wars about how open and closed they should be. Now we have an air exchange system. But now I hear they're light wars. That's what I've heard in the middle of the night. <laughs> that there's some people like the lights on and some like them off and they get turned off and on. <laughs> it's like we'll find something, right? <laughs> So practicing renunciation in the form of practicing restraint. Restraint from acting out the yogi mind things that come up. The next parami is patience. This is one of my favorites. I like to take like year, a whole year and work on a parami for a year. I've had several years of patience. I'm still working on it. <laughs> Not my strongest one. I like to see what uh, kinds of things come up in the mainstream and the media that seem kind of anti-Dharma to me. And here was a commercial. I don't even know what the company was, but it said... At SBC, impatience is a virtue. <laughs> I don't know what SBC stands for, but that, that's kind of, uh, again, the um, dominant paradigm that impatience is a virtue, that we want to get everything done now. And we take a different... Uh, we have a different idea here in practice, don't we? So this sense of patience, thinking about patience in our practice, it's, it's really about settling into the present moment, isn't it? We can notice on retreat when we're like leaning into the future in some way. It might be leaning to the next thing happening in the retreat or just leaning into the next moment. And we can see that it has a sense of impatience about it, somehow trying to get where. And we can settle back, right? We practice this a lot, settling back into the present moment. That's the practice of patience. Sometimes we practice patience just getting through a sitting, right? When you're in one of those sittings where you're just going to die if they don't ring the bell very soon. and Making it to the end is a practice in patience. Or sometimes we're wishing for the retreat to end, right? So we're, we're practice patience about that. I can give you a little hint. It's not better out there. So <laughs> if you're feeling impatient about the end of the retreat, oh, enjoy it while it lasts is what I would say. From uh, Jack Cornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, 
Perfection must be around here somewhere. Where is it? Is it the next opportunity or the next experience or the one after that? My true practice is patience, not wanting anything special or unusual to happen. As soon as I see striving and expecting, I know I've lost the great perfection. The hardest thing I still have to pass through is the realization that there is no final condition to rely on. It is all fundamentally insecure, changing. You don't learn this quickly. You have to let go into this ordinary perfection again and again. The other understanding that's probably coming to you is that um, the spiritual path is a long-term project. So there's something about having patience with this whole process of transformation. It takes time, years, our lives. We give our lives to the practice, actually. At a certain point, um, we quit thinking that there's some point when we're going to get it, and we just take on practice as a way of living. It's a lot more patience when, when we make that shift. I know that there's been many times, or there were, there used to be much more than now. I have so much more trust now. But in the past, I'd often feel like my practice was, well, need a little speeding up. (laughs) It wasn't um, as fast as I wanted. The transformation wasn't as fast as I wanted. But when I look back over the years, whenever I would look back, I would see that it was just on time that things unfolded just as they needed to, that I couldn't open in certain ways until I did because I wasn't strong enough. And after seeing this over a number of years of practice, uh, there develops this uh, trust in the process, trust in the speed of opening, trust in in the speed of transformation. That's patience. The Dalai Lama said that, um, one time he was talking to some American students, he said, American students always want the quickest and easiest way. Perhaps a little change every decade is enough. (laughs) Patience. St. Francis of Azizi, the Catholic saint, said, Give me a cup of understanding, a barrel of love, and an ocean of patience. The next parami is effort or energy, which we've talked about a fair amount, virya, sometimes translated as diligence. This um, parami or or, uh, mental factor is listed in more lists than any other one, or so I've heard. And any other, and you know, the Buddha's there's a lot of lists, right? But it's listed more than any of the other ones. It's uh, a factor of enlightenment, one of the paramis, one of the five controlling factors, one of the steps of the eightfold path. And it's said that energy is considered necessary for developing all the other paramis. 
you've all been developing this um, parami. Well, there's two ways you can look at the parami of effort. One way you can look at it as developing balanced effort, learning for ourselves what's balanced effort, learning for ourselves when we get too tight, being able to recognize that, and relaxing, loosening up, learning for ourselves when we start getting too loose and putting in a little more effort. We talk about this a lot in interviews. It's a big part of interviews, right? But you're learning it for yourself. So that's one way we can say that you're strengthening that here. The other way that effort's talked about classically is the effort to cultivate or encourage uh, wholesome mind states and discourage or um, abandon unwholesome mind states. And it's the quality of mindfulness that does both of these. Mindfulness encourages wholesome mind states and it discourages unwholesome mind states. You've been working a lot over this time with um, wholesome mind states and unwholesome mind states, right? Learning how to uh, meet them in a way that is skillful and leads to happiness rather than suffering. You've been practicing bringing mindfulness to unwholesome mind states, unhelpful mind states, in order to learn how not to get entangled in them or learn how to get disentangled from them. Done this over and over and over again, right? And then you've been bringing mindfulness to skillful mind states like metta and compassion and mudita, and then all the um, skillful mind states that arise in our practice like joy and concentration and Um, calm. And then lastly, we talk about effort, uh, we talk about courageous effort. This willingness to persevere through all the challenges of practice. My first month, retreat, my first retreat here, I was incredibly sleepy after 6 p.m. It was just, quote-unquote, it was hopeless. <laughs> and uh, even walking, I would sometimes almost fall asleep. I didn't need more sleep. That wasn't the problem. It was just that I didn't have energy at that time of night to kind of meet the concentration. It just wasn't, uh, it wouldn't come together. And, and uh, Every night I stayed up till 11 o'clock practicing with just incredible sleepiness. For me, that was courageous effort. It was really unpleasant. Um, We all have our different uh, hindrances and um, challenges. And to keep going and to keep working with them, that's courageous effort. There's a book called To Shine One Corner of the World by David Chadwick. It's about um, Suzuki Roshi's different quotes from Suzuki Roshi. And it says, I love this one. It says, a student of Suzuki Roshi saw his teacher of a year and a half in a private interview. He said that he couldn't continue, that every time he sat zazen or meditation, he started to cry. I can't take it, he said. I'm leaving. I can't be here anymore. Suzuki didn't tell him to stay. He merely said, you try and you try and you fail and then you go deeper. That's courageous effort, right? We try and we try, we fail, and then we go deeper. 
The next parami is uh, resolution or determination. And this is a quality of um, using the will, using willpower. And it's related to effort. You can see that, right? Obviously, you have a lot of willpower or you wouldn't still be here. You wouldn't have gotten here. It takes a lot of willpower to uh, get to a retreat and to stick it through. So you've used your will. You've used determination uh, to get you into the hall, to get you out to do the walking, to um, meet those uh, challenges that come up. That's getting, uh, you could say that that's getting strengthened every time you come into the hall when you don't want to, or you do a walking when you don't want to, or you get up when you wake up, even though you feel like staying in bed longer. All of these ways that we stretch ourselves um, develop this quality of determination. One thing that yogis have been talking about and which is really important for many of us, is a healthy use of willpower or a healthy use of determination. Sometimes for a lot of us, uh, this quality of will can have an aggressive edge. It can be used kind of against ourselves. It has this uh, striving or aggressive energy to it, a harsh quality to it that actually has roots of an aversion or self-hatred. And we have to learn how to balance this determination with a sense of gentleness. Trying to understand what is a healthy use of will, because so many of us have an unhealthy use of will. And then we want to dump will totally, but we can't do that. Willpower is really important. Determination is really important. But how do we use it with gentleness? kind of knowing what our limits are, stretching a little bit, but not stretching beyond what we can do. Sometimes we feel like we should have the motor on the boat going at high speed all the time, but that just burns us out. So what's the limits of the motor? How do we use it uh, skillfully? So you're learning about that too. the parami of truthfulness. I find this interesting because if this parami is just talking about telling the truth, you would think that that would be covered under sila. So there must be a reason why it's here, an important reason uh, why it's included as its own parami. So on on the surface level, There's the not telling lies, so being truthful in that way, not telling lies. And that's really important. If we're telling lies, you could say that we're um, cultivating delusion. We're cultivating deception. And if we're here trying to understand the truth, but yet in our lives we're cultivating deception, there's some mismatch there. So there is this quality of telling the truth or this importance of telling the truth. But there's another way that perhaps this parami talks to a commitment to the truth, 
to seeing the truth of life, to seeing the Four Noble Truths, kind of the foundation of Buddhist teachings. So a commitment or a willingness to meet the truth of life, a commitment to see clearly, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Pema Chodron said, the truth is inconvenient. It takes a deep commitment to truth to see it through. There's a price for our commitment to the truth, and the price is giving up our cherished delusions. That's why it takes such a commitment. There's also something about opening to the truth about ourselves on a personality level. The parts of ourselves that we find easy or pleasant, uh, not so hard to open to, but as we sit, I'm suspecting that you've begun to notice some of the um, traits, you could say, are patterns or uh, well, defilements that come up, right, that aren't so pretty. Trungpa Rinpoche called practice insult after insult for that very reason. Ruth Dennison, a Vipassana teacher from Germany, said, self-knowledge, darlings, is always bad news. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, on one level it is. We have to give up our cherished delusions of, how, of our own purity. But um, on another level, it's just a huge relief. It takes so much energy to try to um, hide from the truth. Rilke said, I want to unfold. I don't want to stay folded anywhere, because where I'm folded, there I am untrue. I think of that, I want to unfold. I think of that as the opening process of being willing to see whatever appears. So with that willingness, with the willingness to sit here, see the truth of life, anicca, anatta, dukkha, being willing to see the um, truth of ourselves on a personality level, we're developing that parami of truthfulness, our commitment to the truth. However, we want to do this in a way that is gentle. We don't want this journey of truthfulness to become grim which leads to the next quality of metta. Well, we've talked a lot about metta. I probably don't need to say a whole lot more. It's important to bring this quality of love and kindness and gentleness to these other qualities of resolution and effort and truthfulness. We can crash and burn in our practice without this gentle quality of a kind heart. There was one 
Vipassana practitioner that uh, that I knew who had practiced for many years, and he said, I've been practicing for 20 years, and before I practiced metta, he said, during those 20 years of practicing Vipassana, it was like standing in the sun and never feeling the warmth. And then for him, when he started to practice metta, it completely transformed the Vipassana practice. He could feel the warmth. That's what we need it for, the metta to to bring in the, the warmth. We've talked about this a lot, so I don't think I'll talk about it more, especially since it's getting near the end of the hour and I have two more uh, paramis. Um, but, but I would say that probably many of you have seen the development of your tender heart here the heart of metta. You've had times where um, you might see a little bug and really care about it. Or you care about your fellow yogis. Just that, that heart that's able to be touched and that wants to offer back that kindness. It, you, you almost can't not develop that. Like just being here, being quiet for all this time. When the armoring of the heart starts to dissolve, there's the metta. You don't have to dig too far. I was thinking today as I was walking in the woods just about how through practice I've come to um, feel that kind of tenderness towards all living beings, not even living beings. There's a favorite rock I have out where I walk that I like to just say hi to when I walk by. But today I was um, liberating trees. And just, I feel so uh, tender towards them. And I'm a member of this club called the National Tree Liberation Front. Perhaps you've heard of it. (laughs) Perhaps not, actually. Um, (laughs) But I bet some of you are members and uh, we like to free trees. And um, so I like to free trees after these kinds of storms. I was thinking it's kind of like the Bodhisattva vow, though. The, Bodhi, the Bodhisattva vow is though, though beings are number, numberless, I vow to save them all. It's kind of like though the trees are numberless, I vow to save them all. I can't save that many. But this afternoon, when I should have been working perhaps on this talk a little bit more, I was liberating trees. <laughs> So if, so if this is a low-quality talk for you, at least a few trees have been freed. <laughs> you can remember that. Uh, isn't it great, that feeling of um, connection and kindness with trees and ants and yogis, rocks? I know you've been developing that. The last two, so um, we have equanimity, upeka. And this is the mind and heart that can stay engaged in this world um, with balance. 
with inclusivity. The way that we develop equanimity, well, there's a couple ways. One way might be that we incline the mind towards equanimity. So sometimes we use phrases such as, this is the way things are right now. One of my favorite equanimity phrases, this is the way things are right now. To, to incline the mind towards, can we, can we increase the capacity of heart and mind to hold life as it is without any need to hold on or push away? That's the development of equanimity. But a, another huge way that we develop equanimity is by um, being willing to sit down and meet our old friends grasping and aversion and um, being able, interested and willing to explore uh, pleasant and unpleasant and how the mind goes into reactivity and how the mind perhaps does not go into reactivity. Many years ago, I was uh, traveling. I'd be, I think I'd been on vacation with my partner, and then I taught a retreat, and I was um, at the airport, uh, ready to go home. I'd been gone 16 days. I was looking forward to my own bed that night, and um, I was coming back from Portland, so it was a long flight. And I had the last flight out of the day to make it back. And there was a traffic jam, but I still seemed to get to the airport on time. And I went up to the machine, I put my little card in, and they said, rejected. And apparently I had shown up at the airport 44 minutes before the flight instead of the required 45. And um, (laughs) I wasn't very happy. Um, Not only was I not going to make it home that night, I was going to have to find a place to stay in town, and I also felt like I had been unfairly bumped from the flight. It was a full flight, so they didn't have to pay me um, to bump me. I was not equanimous. I was, I, was, I was pretty upset, I remember. And then I remember also that as I was pretty upset, I kind of did the bare minimum I needed to do at that moment. And then as I, I went to sit somewhere, and, but I remember as, as I was upset, this little voice said to me, Rebecca, you're a Dharma teacher. Shouldn't you be more equanimous than this? <laughs> and I answered, I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> and what was great about that for me was I was totally okay with that. So interestingly, I was equanimous about not being equanimous. Like you can do that, right? This is the thing about equanimity is we get to start exactly where we're at. We don't have to make it be different than what it is. So I checked in with myself every few minutes. I'd be like, okay, are you equanimous yet? No, not yet. Um, (laughs) And then after a little while, I was like, are you equanimous? Yeah, yeah, I think I'm feeling a little better. I think I'm actually feeling good enough that I'll figure out what I'm going to do for tonight. Um, It was really liberating. And then uh, last year, two years ago, when I was coming back from Burma, I um, airport's equanimity practice, like, you can't get any better. I was coming back from Burma, and I had, I had lots of flights, like five different flights, so it was pretty confusing, the scheduling. So I'd come down and spent the um, day at the Shwedagan Pagoda, and, and then the next morning um, was flying out of Rangoon. So I, I'd go up in the line, go up, get, give them my passport, they kind of look at it, and they ask for my itinerary, I give them my itinerary, and they look at it, and they said, that flight left yesterday. 
<laughs> I've never done that before, right? So I watched my mind. I'd just been on retreat this time. I watched my mind, and it was like, this isn't happening. And it was two, it was two blips of this isn't happening. Really, it was like, this isn't happening, this isn't happening. Then there were two blips of aversion. I don't like that this is happening. I don't like that this is happening. And then it was like, hmm, what do I do next? And it was all over. It was four blips. I just watched the mind do that. That time, stronger equanimity, right? And then in the end, it turned out fine. I got my ticket and I went on my way. So the development of equanimity is just being curious about that. Like just watching the mind, heart, response to the changing conditions of life. Well, you've pretty much been doing that for weeks now, right? That's a huge part of our practice. And then last but not least, we have wisdom. The parami of wisdom is, is, um, wisdom is this uh, seeing things as they are. So understanding the nature of reality. That sounds so, I don't, I keep trying to find easier ways to say that. That doesn't sound so lofty, the nature of reality. But that is what it is, like how things are, how this world is. Anicca, nata, dukkha, the Four Noble Truths. And the important thing is that, um, the important thing about wisdom is this injunction to see for ourselves. Not to believe it because you're told it or because you read it or because the Buddha said it. And to also know that like believing it intellectually isn't going to do it. It's this willingness to see for ourselves through moment-to-moment mindfulness. That's what you've been doing. Developing wisdom by your willingness to see here, sit here, moment, moment, seeing the truth, understanding the way things are. So even if you can't follow 50 breaths in a row, you're developing the paramis while you're here on retreat, these qualities of a an awakened one. Can you see how much is happening even if you don't think it is or even if you can't see it? Well, can you see it if you can't see it? But it's happening. The development of generosity through giving the gift of our practice and the development of sila through keeping the precepts and developing sensitivity around our actions and the development of renunciation by giving up worldly pleasures and learning how to live contented with little. Patience by persevering when times are rough. Effort by noticing when we're out of balancing and correcting. Resolution by calling on determination to sustain us. Truthfulness by being willing to connect with the truth of life. Metta by bringing gentleness to our investigation. Equanimity by having the courage to face reactivity and work with pleasant and unpleasantness. 
and wisdom by investigating for ourselves the nature of life. So please appreciate the paramis that are um, strong for you. Appreciate what you've been learning here. And again, if you wish to choose a parami that's not so strong and and uh, remind yourself of it over the coming days as a way to um, deepen your practice, feel free to do that. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.